This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss protein and healthy aging with master herbalist Joel Thuna. We'll learn about mise en place with cooking expert Carolyn Tanner-Cohen. We'll discover whether you're at higher risk for COVID-19 hospitalization with Dr. Angel Chu. And lastly, we'll find out about Inherited Retinal Disease Awareness Month with Doug Earle. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. For the first time, McGill University researchers have found a significant association between the presence of low muscle mass and faster cognitive decline and that this association is independent of muscle strength and physical activity levels. These findings could be used to help identify people at risk of developing dementia, according to those researchers. By now, you've likely heard that 10,000 steps a day is the sweet spot for lowered risk of disease and death. But how fast you walk could also be just as important, according to new research from the University of Sydney. A faster stepping pace, like a power walk, showed benefits above and beyond the number of steps achieved. A dieter wrestling with cravings for fatty foods might be tempted to blame their tongue. The delicious taste of butter or ice cream is hard to resist, but new research investigating the source of our appetites has uncovered an entirely new connection between the gut and brain that drives our desire for fat. At Columbia's Zuckerman Institute, scientists studying mice found that fat entering the intestines triggers a signal conducted along the nerves to the brain, and this signal drives a desire for fatty foods. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by Joel Thuna in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural Liquid Greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to The Tonic Magazine and a regular guest on this show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I am doing wonderful. I am, as always, happy to be here with you. So, newsflash, Joel. I am getting older. And, <laughs> Believe it uh, or not, so am I. Yeah, yeah, it's shocking, I know. And you know me, I like when things come up, I will turn them over a hundred different ways and look at them, you know, from underneath and from above and this and that. Yep. And, uh, you know, you've kind of put me onto a topic, which is protein and its interaction with us as we age. Yes. So why don't we start with 
how you would describe the manifestation of aging. Like I obviously, you know, we're getting old, you know, yeah. aside from the calendar, right? Like, you know. Of course. So, aging, it's funny. I was brought up to believe that aging was nothing more than dates on a calendar, how you felt was something far more important, but as I have now reached past the half century mark, yep. we'll put it that way, I'm beginning to look at it a little differently. So, I I looked into it and it's essentially we have to look at what aging does to everyone. And as we age, our bodies show the wear and tear of our lives up until that point. Most reluctantly accept this and are resigned that they will decline, experience reductions in mental and physical abilities, as well as increases in pain, disease, and loss of balance and mobility. Essentially, they expect to become frail, weak, and disease-riddled. And I'm here to say, I don't accept that. Yeah. I really don't. You know, the, I guess the question you're posing is, is it inevitable? And we've heard your answer, right? Like, you know, I think it is in the sense that eventually, you know, it's going to catch up with you. But I think we can't be passive about it. Oh, heck no. And the I think the unfortunate thing is most people only think about it when the impacts have already occurred. Yeah, right? well, it's like, too late. Right? Like if we thought about anti-aging or aging gracefully, if we were in our 30s and 40s, we'd probably be in a better state in our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right? But I guess the message is it's never too late, but it's Agreed. probably... It, is, it isn't too late in your 50s or 60s. You're right. It isn't. We're bred to believe that right. through society as a whole with all the beautiful people in the magazines in their 20s. Right. <laughs> but it is never too late, no matter how old you are. And I can state that equivocally from my own experience because my father, who he'll kill me if I say how old he actually is. Well, let's put it this way. He's north of 80 yeah. and he's changing his lifestyle and his diet now and seeing returns on it. I was, I mean, it's no secret. I was very unfit in my thirties mm -hmm. and I, you know, the fable is that I changed my life, but it is true. Yes. But I can tell you in many respects, I am much fitter and healthier now in my mid fifties than I was in my mid thirties. Oh, you're, you're fitter now than when I met you, which was 20 years ago. Right. Right. So oh, yeah. yeah, you can so. see it both in your physical demeanor as well as in your mental stability and your outlook on life. You can see it talking to you and just looking at you. So, you know, one of the reasons that I love having you on the show is because you can explain phenomenon like that. Like we can viscerally say, oh, wow, that person looks good or, you know, mm -hmm. a person seems to have their quote unquote stuff together. <laughs> but how is healthy nutrition and movement important when we age? Like how does that fit into the picture of healthy, graceful aging? Well, the big thing is for most people, we have to remember that they view as we age, okay, our physical activity declines because we're entering those years where we're supposed to slow down. Mm -hmm. Horse hockey. Yep. Who said that? Right. Yeah, it was in the motion pictures, but who gives a darn? You want to be as active as you can physically be without hurting yourself. And I actually found this morning that the CDC in the U.S., put out their recommendations for physical activity for people over the age of 65. Mm -hmm. And what they say is the minimum needs 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity, which they define as brisk walking, yep. or 75 minutes 
a week of vigorous intensity activities such as hiking, jogging, or running. On top of that, they say two days a week of muscle strengthening exercises and also three days a week activities to improve balance such as standing on one foot or yoga, things like that. And that's their minimum levels. And the problem is, according to their research, less than 10% of people get that. So it's no wonder that they're physically declining. When you couple that with diet, the facet here is that as we age, our ability to absorb nutrients goes down. Right. That's, that's due to the actual acid level and enzyme levels in our gut. So what you have to do is you have to concentrate more on the nutrients you need and you have to actually eat healthier so that for every little bit of food you put in, you get more nutrition because on coupled with our lower ability to digest our food, as we age, the actual sheer volume of food we eat goes down. Right. So, yeah, it was fine in your 20s to eat junk food because you had enough other foods to make up for it. But now in your late 50s, early 60s, etc., you're only eating 20% of what you used to eat. You have to make sure that you get more bang for your buck per se. Okay. Do you think there's a definition of healthy aging? Could you encapsulate it? Other people, I'm sure, would have different opinions, but can we give people a baseline of what that looks like or or what it means? For this one, what I'm going to do is I'm going to defer to the World Health Organization. Their definition is that healthy aging is the process of developing and maintaining the functional ability that enables well-being in older age. Now, take that marble mumble-jumble, and essentially what it means is having the physical ability mental ability and overall health to do what you want when you want throughout your life. Right. And that's what everyone strives for. Right. To do what I want, when I want, how I want. (laughs) When I'm in the middle of like a tough workout, I have to remind myself I'm doing this because I can and because I want to. Yep. Right. Like philosophically, I want to. In the moment, I probably don't want to, (laughs) but but I have to remind myself that because there may be a day and I say may, I always couch it on that level where I can't. For whatever reason. I'm very much the same way, and it's actually hilarious. I'll go to a shopping mall or to a subway with with friends and family, and I learned very early on never to take elevators or to take the escalator. Why? Because I'm at an age now where I can comfortably do the stairs, and a day may come where I can't, so I want to prolong the length of time, I can do it. Exactly. No, no, that's my philosophy. If I can do it, I want to do it, I shall do it. Yep. Okay. What do we need to do to age gracefully, in your opinion? So what we need to do is we need to look at each one of those pieces individually and examine what we can do. What I mean by that is the physical ability, mental ability, and overall health. So let's look at physical ability. Mm -hmm. For that, what we have to do is we have to look at what gives us our physical abilities, muscles, bones, and connective tissue. Yep. And for those, you need them to be strong and also to be flexible. Right. You have to have that. For most people, unfortunately, as they age, this isn't a reality. Sarcopenia, which is age-related muscle loss, which you and I have spoken about a fair bit, robs you of muscle mass and strength. At the same time, often you have osteoporosis, although not potentially actually diagnosed, which robs you of bone mass and strength. Combine those two things together, strain our connective tissues, reducing their strength. Take that whole thing together, 
And the result is, if we don't do anything, we have a loss of balance, mobility, and freedom. So, first of all, let's try and keep our muscles and bones and connective tissue strong. To do that, you need to make sure you're getting sufficient protein from a wide variety of complete sources. Omnivores have the widest choice. They can pretty much eat any protein source. Now, vegans, theirs are more limited, but they can still get a wide variety using vegetables, lentils, grains, legumes as their options. Whichever camp you fall into, look to top it up. And I do say that, yes, even if you're having a great diet, you still want to top it up. And I say use a high-quality protein supplement. Purely protein is the highest grade out there. Little pat on my own back there. Yep. (laughs) And... On top of that, protein just isn't enough by itself. You also need to make sure that you get other nutrients. The big ones here are calcium, preferably in organic form, vitamins D, vitamins K2, and vitamin B12. And here's the big kicker. This is not something you want to do occasionally. This is day in, day out, all the supplements and the healthy eating. Day in, day out for the benefit. When does this become an issue for Canadians? I know you do this. If somebody came to you at a cocktail party and said, when should I start topping up with protein? When would you say it becomes relevant to do that? Reality is it's based on your lifestyle. True. If if you're someone who's a health fanatic, then in your 30s and 40s, 20s, you're doing great. You don't have issues. After age 40, I say it's everyone, no matter health addict or not. If you're someone who's not a health addict, I'd say you're probably talking mid 30s to start. How does the digestive system fit into this paradigm? It's a key component. It's the center of it. Because in order for you to digest and get the nutrition you need from your food and your supplements, you have to have a reasonably healthy digestive system. The problem is, as we alluded to earlier, as we age, our digestive system starts to be less optimal, just naturally. Mm -hmm. Less enzymes, less quality of enzymes. In addition to that, the acidic environment starts to degrade. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that your digestion is tip-top and then some. To do this, your big friends here are fiber and water. (laughs) Big, big friends. And a lot of people know about the fiber, but they forget about the water. So what fiber does is helps keep your gut moving and clean. And it also has multiple other benefits in disease prevention, while water helps your gut and your kidneys eliminate waste. If you don't have enough water, and I mean regular everyday clean water, none of that fancy stuff that's imported from who knows where, what ends up happening is the toxins just stay in your body. And (laughs) toxins aren't good to begin with. They're really not good if they stay around and make a home And so what you want to do is make sure that you have as much water as you can comfortably handle in a day and a little more than that. Mm -hmm. If you don't push yourself, you'll slowly see that it'll start to reduce. So you want to keep pushing yourself a little to maintain it. And I do mean water. I don't mean drinks that have a water content. I mean just straight, simple water from a tap that's filtered. That's it. Nothing fancy, nothing scary interesting. For the fiber... I do recommend a specific one, fiberific and probiotic. And the reason is, A, it's really easy to take. B, it's got a ton of science behind it. And C, it also has that additional probiotic to just give your gut that little extra benefit. Great. 
So I recently reported on another episode of the show, the connection between keeping your muscle mass and cognition, which is an important part of aging. Oh, yes. So why don't we talk a little bit about mental health and and cognition for a sec? Well, the whole thing is you can't age healthy. You can't actually be healthy without good mental health. You can't. Most of us try and concentrate on our physical because it's something we outwardly see and other people see of us. Right. But if we don't see ourselves well and feel well mentally, it's all for naught. It truly is. And if anything, the past two to three years has taught us that that is of vital importance. So it has to be recognized in everyone that it's as urgent. Over 20% of people 55 years and older experience some type of mental health condition in Canada. The most common conditions are anxiety, cognitive impairment, and mood disorders. And when I say mood disorders, I'm talking about depression and bipolar. Now, maintaining good mental health has several components. Socialization cannot be minimized. There's also nutrition and mindfulness. Now, adequate social support is associated with reduced risk of mental illness, physical illness, and mortality. And what I mean by adequate social and emotional support is I mean a good friend and family network, people you can actually talk with, talk to, and open up to. Mm -hmm. That has been proven time and time again to improve overall health. Now, on top of that, you want to make sure that you have the good nutrition. You have to have good nutrition. Without it, your body just can't do what it's supposed to do, including your mind. And then there's mindfulness. Mindfulness is getting into yourself and basically ensuring you're healthy. And yes, outwardly, you could say it's yoga, it's this, it's that. It can be as simple as just mindful breathing. There are tons of places online and guides you can find really inexpensive, easy tips on how to do it. We have time for one last quick question, and that is... If you had one thought for everybody to take away about aging, what would it be? Be honest with yourselves. And if you use the adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. And that comes to everything physical as well as everything mental. Use it and enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. As always, my pleasure, sir. That was Joel Thuna. For more information about his business, please visit purely.ca, P-U-R-E-L-E dot C-A. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. That's T-O-N-I-C dot C-A. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss mise en place on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Carolyn Cohen has owned and operated a highly successful boutique cooking school in Toronto called Delicious Dish, which specialized in whole food home cooking for over the past 20 years. Her informative and casual teaching style has inspired many people to become great cooks. In her new role at Cookin', she's helping to recruit and onboard home cooks. Carolyn loves seeing the creative energy and integrity the cooks have for their own brand as they prepare to share it with the city for the first time. After hearing from many cooks who've been struggling to find balance and autonomy in the food industry, she looks forward to working with them to nourish more people by making home-cooked meals more accessible. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Jamie. Great. How are you? Doing well. So, I don't know. Have you caught the new TV series, The Bear? You know, I haven't watched it, but it's on my watch list. I'm still watching the pizza. Okay. So, no. Gotcha. Okay. So, in The Bear, it's about this Michelin-starred chef, which is apropos of this conversation, considering what's going on. Well, no. Actually, he's not the chef in it. He plays a different role. But but what the chef does is he tries to bring high-end French-style cookery to this like Italian beef sandwich place out of Chicago. And one of the things he does is he insists on the cooks who are like short order cooks to start doing mise en place. So, really? Really. Okay. So I thought it would be fun to talk about mise en place today. You up for it? Yes, totally. I'm a big advocate and not. Okay. So for those who don't know, what is mise en place? Okay. So mise en place, for those of you who haven't been to French class for a long time, mise en place actually translate to to put in place. So put everything in place, basically. Get organized. So in cooking language, it basically refers to getting organized or setting your ingredients out, laying them out, preferably in order of appearance, so that when you start a recipe, your cooking process is smooth, which includes your tools also. For me, it does. But it doesn't for everybody, but for me, it does. Jamie, let's talk about, is this really necessary if you're a home cook? Does this really help? And I'll answer first by saying yes. But it also, also no. So let's talk about that. I would say it depends on the sophistication of the recipes that you're doing and how much time you need to cook. Like if you are putting together a huge meal with all these different components and different recipes, obviously getting yourself organized is going to be helpful. If you are making one dish and you have all the time in the world, probably doesn't matter would be my response. Yes. I mean, it's also like if you're making one dish that is very fast paced like a stir fry, yeah. you definitely wanted to sure. have everything ready and mise en place. But we could talk about, you know, different places where it's important and different ways of doing mise en place. And it's not necessarily limited to a recipe. It could also be if you're hosting, you know, a small dinner gathering where you lay out your cutlery and you lay out your platters. And I'll tell you how I do that, which I was trained by my grandmother. Okay. So we could talk about all those things, but it really stems from my need for organization And just the same way I lay out my outfit for work the night before. You know, who wants to think about that? I mean, some people don't. But for me, you know, I need to do things like that. So let's start talk about, you know, a fast-paced recipe like a stir-fry. So you really don't want to forget anything. And each ingredient only takes a few seconds or a few minutes to cook. So you want to definitely have the next ingredient in the queue of how it's going to go into your pot or your wok. I think with most Asian cooking, mise en place is crucial. Because as you said, particularly if you're fast frying something like in a wok or even combining ingredients, whereas you said there's not a lot of cooking, it's not being slow cooked, for example, like if you're in the moment, yes, I agree with you. Mise en place is crucial. In talking about that, I mean, if you're putting the garlic and the ginger 
and, you know, maybe the whites of the green onion into the pot at the same time, you can most certainly lay them out together. You don't need to waste three different bowls to be able to have to wash three little bowls. Put them all out together, laid out. And, of course, in order of appearance, including, you know, if you need to remove the chicken or the beef or the tofu from the hot wok or fry pan and put it somewhere while you're cooking vegetables, make sure you have that dish handy as well. Right. I mean, you know, here's an example of where it would come in handy. Let's say you were making individualized dishes repeatedly for people with slight variations. So you're making brunch and you're cooking eggs, but you're cooking eggs different ways for different people. And you're making omelets, for example, and everybody wants something different in their omelet. Having everything chopped up and in its place in advance will mean that you can execute that so that everybody kind of gets to eat at the same time, as opposed to waiting like an hour between omelet number one and omelet number 10, right? Right. And we can look at mise en place on a grander scale as well. If there's something, you're having a dinner with several people and there's something you could do ahead of time, that should be done well in advance. And that's a way of doing, you know, it's it's sort of mise en place, you know, on a larger scale. So it's not like, you know, specific to a recipe, but just the stuff that could be done. So in talking about, you know, the platters or the napkins or the spoons or the serving pieces, what I like to do is I'll lay out, especially if I'm having a dinner party, and we're coming up to holiday time, holiday season is starting, and I'll lay out the platters on the table or the dining room table, and then I'll put a post-it note that says, like, for chicken, and I'll even put the serving piece on it. And then I might make a separate post-it note that says, garnish with, you know, chopped parsley or chopped dill or some chives. So I'll always remember the garnish. And then when it comes to the day of the event, I will have the chopped parsley already cut up in a little bowl or the chopped tribes or whatever I'm going to garnish with. And I'll put a little damp piece of paper towel on top of the freshly chopped parsley, maybe a piece of plastic wrap if I need to keep it for a longer time. And that's waiting on the platter. And that's, you know, meal prep and mise en place all in one word. And I don't know if you know this, Jamie, but if you do chop up a garnish ahead of time, like parsley or chives or anything like that, you can cover it with a damp paper towel and then a piece of plastic wrap and leave it in the fridge for up to two days, mm-hmm. already ready to go. So these are little details that can be done or mise en place uh, well in advance. Right. So all that to say, let's say you're making a pasta sauce. Okay, mm-hmm. or you know a bolognese or something, and the first ingredient is a chopped onion. Yep. The next ingredient is garlic, and the following ingredient might be your tomatoes from the can. Right. So there's no purpose in chopping your garlic ahead of time when it takes ten minutes for your onion to saute. Right. So in that situation, don't waste the time, the upfront time. Use the long cooking time of the onion or another ingredient to mise en place the rest of your ingredients. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's all about time saving. So if it saves time later on to mise en place everything, or if it saves time during a recipe to, you know, continue to prep your recipe while the first ingredient is cooking. But you never want to burn the garlic, so to speak. So if your garlic is going to go into the fry pan and it only takes 10 seconds to cook, then make sure your tomato can is open. Right. So that's a way of mise en place as well. And the, the thing that I always tell my cooks is that, If you're cooking and it's fast and furious and you forgot to prep something in advance, you could always just shut your stove off or remove the pan from the heat and it'll buy yourself some time as opposed to even turning it down low and chopping the garlic or chopping an onion or whatever your next step is. I mean, it seems obvious, but I think the way forward to determine whether or not you need to take the step of mise en place 
is to read the recipe carefully in advance from beginning <laughs> to end, because that will edify like where there's going to be those moments where like perhaps in the span of two minutes, you have to do five things. And then like maybe for the next step, it's like a full hour, in which case that will give you the time to maybe get to the following steps. For Un- sure. Understanding where the bottlenecks are going to occur and where you need to move quickly will probably tell you what you need to prepare in advance Absolutely. better than anything else. Absolutely. And most ingredients will have prep notes. And if they don't have prep notes, you might want to skip that recipe. So, for example, it'll say one onion. Then it'll be a comment. It says dice. So get that done ahead of time. And usually the first step in the ingredient, you know, might call for something, might, you know, signal to you that it's something you might need to do ahead of time, like may call for a long marinade. So just to reiterate your point, make sure that you read a recipe well in advance and make sure that you do the things that could take 24 hours well in advance. And then the recipe might be, you know, largely unattended time. So we review a lot of cookbooks on the show, Naomi and I do. And what yeah. we're finding is a lot of the chefy cookbooks as opposed to the home cookbooks. So like, you know, if it's a famous restaurant's cookbooks, yeah. they are sort of ignoring the fact that they have all the mise en place done. And the ingredients will be something like garlic confit. So take garlic confit. Now, if you don't have garlic confit sitting around, then, you know, you have to make that. Right. And that's on the recipe at page 368. So you also have to. Right. So like you you think it's a simple recipe. But then when you actually read it, there are actually three recipes within the recipe. And you have to make sure that you're ready for those intermediate steps as well. So absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. And, you know, a lot of recipes will call for, you know, prepping everything in advance with the photos will show little dishes prepared in advance. I'm not a big fan of using little dishes because it's a lot of cleanup time. Yeah, for sure. So what I like to do is I take my chopping board or even a piece of parchment paper and, and I put yeah. clusters. Yeah, exactly. My, yes, my readied, my mise en place prep ready. So it's all clustered on in little corners. And of course, back to my first point that if you're cooking something together in a pan, put that together so you don't have to think about it. I want to end off in a slightly different area. And that is there are certain things and I kind of alluded to it with my last comment that we have on hand that enhance the cookery of anything you're going to do. So for example, we always have pickled onions in the fridge and we frequently have comfy garlic in the fridge because you can throw those into recipes and then like a ton of work has already been done already. And it adds so much extra flavor to your meal. For sure. You know what I call that? What? Meal prep. Yeah. So meal prep does not, we've talked about this before, but meal prep does not mean make tons of food and eat leftovers all week. Meal prep means make some stuff that you could put into your meal that will save you time. So peel your garlic when you bring it home from the grocery store and put it into a nice jar so you have garlic peeled. Have your pickled onions. They take five minutes to make. Exactly. Uh, and feel free to go on my website if you want to know how, or I'm sure, Jamie, you have a recipe as well. Yep. Or garlic confit. Takes five minutes to prep, a few hours to slow cook, unattended time. Have that ready in your fridge. Peel those carrots. You could peel and chop onions at the beginning of the week. So all these little mise en place is also considered in my world meal prep. Excellent. Thanks for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Well, I think next time we should just talk about why you should be eating at home. Sounds like a plan. For more information about Carolyn's new endeavors, visit cookin.com. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss whether you're at risk for hospitalization due to COVID-19 on The Tonic. Your family's health and wellness needs should come first. These days, taking care of a loved one should be as easy as ordering goods and groceries to your door on your smartphone. You need MedWorks. 
and at-home service that pulls it all together. We make healthcare and wellness services easy to navigate. Networks at home your way every day. Download the app today. Networks. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Angel Chu is an infectious disease physician at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary. She's also vice chair of Immune Canada, a national coalition of non-governmental professional health, government and private sector organizations with a specific interest in promoting the understanding and use of vaccines recommended by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Dr. Chu is also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm fantastic, Jamie. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. Very few people are honored to be on the show. You'll find that out after you've done it. (laughs) (laughs) We can revisit that question at the end. Okay, fair enough. You'll (laughs) let me know if it was still an honor when we're done, okay? (laughs) I shall. Okay, so we're going to talk about COVID because we haven't done that enough. And I think, you know, the nice thing about talking about it now is a sort of not completely, but kind of in our rear view mirror. And we have some learnings about some of the outcomes. And I thought it would be interesting to sort of talk today about those who are at higher risk. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm so glad because there absolutely is so much COVID fatigue. And, you know, we've been mired in this pandemic for the last, you know, two and a half approaching three years now. And so there definitely is a lot of fatigue for understandable reasons. But I'm glad that we are focusing the spotlight back onto, you know, the dangers of COVID and also for the particularly vulnerable, susceptible populations. Yeah. You know, I think it's amazing to me that there is still sort of a lack of information out there as to who is most at risk. And it's really so important for those people to be aware that they bear extra risk as compared to the general population. So perhaps we should start at the beginning and and sort of define, you know, what is severe COVID, which is the COVID that impacts people who are at, at risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, you highlighted a really, really important point is that a lot of Canadians who are at higher risk of getting severe COVID don't actually appreciate or understand or recognize just how at risk they are because there was a recent survey done kind of polling at-risk or high-risk uh, Canadians and they didn't perceive that their risk was high at all. And so when we define severe COVID, it means that individuals who may have, you know, whether it's because of older age, so we know that older adults over 60 are going to be at higher risk of getting severe COVID outcomes. And then we also know that there's going to be patients who have other medical conditions, such as heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, asthmatic, diabetics in particular. They're going to be at risk of severe COVID. And when we talk about severe COVID, I mean, there's many different spectrums of what COVID does to a a person. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be, you know, your mild kind of cold-like symptoms where patients may get a little bit of a runny nose or a sore throat or lost of taste and smell. But then when it, as it evolves and progresses, some of these higher risk patients may develop more of uh, troubles breathing and because we know that the infection has now migrated down into their lungs and caused other symptoms like pneumonia. And when that happens, then that can lead to hospitalizations. And once somebody's in hospital, then there's several other sequelae or complications that may develop, including things like requirement of ICU admission and need 
for mechanical ventilation to assist in breathing. So that's what we mean by we talk about severe COVID. Okay. So off the top, you mentioned age, people over 60 as being part of that high risk. So why is that? Yeah, so advancing age, we see this with all sorts of infectious diseases, where as an individual gets older, not only do they physically age, but also their body and their immune status uh, gets aging as well. And so older adults tend to typically have more medical problems, obviously. So they get more diabetes, their, you know, their kidneys may start to age as well. So all their organ systems age along with their bodies, of course. But along with that, too, unfortunately, older adults don't respond to vaccines as much as younger adults do. And so that phenomenon is known as immunosenescence, where if we give the same vaccine to an older adult, say over 60 arbitrarily, and the same vaccine as we give to somebody who's younger, the older person will not respond or mount as a high of an immune response to somebody who's younger. So even when we're trying to support and assist assist an older adult and protect them with effective vaccines, they don't get the same level of protection too. So it's kind of like a double whammy. Hmm. I understood other than age, one of the, the biggest cohorts were those who were obese because of the illnesses that flow from being obese, for example, type two diabetes, for example, and heart condition. Is that accurate? Absolutely it is, yes. So obesity, and uh, of course that reflects and leads to all the other uh, medical problems that obesity can lead to. But along with that, you know, there's diabetics, anybody who has heart, liver, lung disease, anybody who has underlying respiratory disease, like asthmatics or those who have COPD, smokers, and anybody who resides in kind of a communal setting. So for example, we think long-term care facilities, those patients are going to be at higher risk and they're going to be a particularly susceptible cohort as well for severe COVID outcomes. Hmm. And along with that, we also know that patients who are immunosuppressed for any reason. So we have a lot of patients who have, you know, either cancer, they're transplant patients, or whether they're on medications that suppress their immune systems. For example, those patients who have rheumatologic conditions or neurologic conditions, they can be particularly susceptible for severe outcomes from COVID as well. So what should you do if you are at risk for severe COVID? Yeah, so there's lots of things. I mean, beyond, you know, obviously the public health measures, you know, masking, social distancing, hand hygiene is especially important because, you know, that's one of the things that we always stress in infectious disease world is we always wash our hands very, very thoroughly because that's the vector and mechanism of transmission. Because if you're touching surfaces, you're, you know, touching all sorts of things, when you touch your face, that's the portal of entry for the virus. So, of course, you know, hand hygiene and following public health measures. But other things that one can do is, of course, optimize their health conditions. So if you're a diabetic, you make sure that, you know, your diabetes is well controlled or whatever other medical condition you have. And then along with that, of course, vaccines are highly effective and to follow the recommended guidance for getting vaccines as well as the booster strategy as well. And then along with that, you know, speak to your healthcare provider, speak to your doctor, because if you have an at-risk or you're in that high-risk category, you can come up with a strategy with your physician and know that if you were to get 
COVID and you're in that high-risk category of developing serious outcomes, then perhaps there's something you can do to preempt that because there are a lot of effective medications to treat COVID if somebody were to get it. Okay. So I want to skip ahead a bit because I know that your mandate is to see that people are properly vaccinated. So I think you would agree that vaccination is is still the best way for people to protect themselves. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. 100%. So, you know, obviously people should be getting their vaccines when they're available. But are there anything, are there any medications that people can take in conjunction with the vaccines that will help? Or is there anything we can do in conjunction with the vaccines to maximize their utility? Yes, definitely. There is actually a couple of effective medications now to treat COVID along with vaccines. Vaccines are still the best preemptive strategy mm-hmm. for prevention of infections. But even after one gets COVID, there are actually several effective therapies now, but they need to be initiated within the first few days of symptom onset or within the first, uh, you know, it has to be started early on in the infection for it to be effective. Okay. But you're, you're talking about if somebody were to get COVID, is there any medications that we can take that are complementary to the vaccines that will help us not get COVID in the first place? No, there's not really anything that we can do to not get COVID. For the patients who are immunosuppressed, yeah. there is a strategy called pre-exposure prophylaxis, and that's a medication, it's a monoclonal antibody that one can get if you're immunosuppressed. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned that it's important that if you're taking, you know, these treatments that you try and get to it as early as you can, right? Once you've determined that you have COVID, why is that? And what are the steps that should be taken? Yes. So with the medications, once somebody acquires COVID, there's Paxlovid as an option, which needs to be initiated within five days of symptom onset. And then there's also Remdesivir, which needs to be initiated within seven days of symptom onset. And the idea behind that is that both of these drugs, they work early on to kind of not hack the virus, but target the virus. And so they do need to be started within the first few days of symptom onset. And so that's why for these higher risk populations, it's important to develop and discuss a strategy with their healthcare provider so that if they were to develop symptoms, then they need to get into initiativeness to be... Okay. We have time for one last question, and that is, where should they go to get more information about all of this? Yes, yeah, so there's lots of provincial uh, websites and guidance from healthcare authorities provincially. So Ontario has their own website, as well as Quebec, Alberta, BC. So various provincial authorities have lots of information. And also, of course, the most important thing is to discuss it with your physician and your healthcare provider. Excellent. So are you still honored to have been on the show? <laughs> 100% I am. And it was well, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, please visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss Inherited Retinal Disease Awareness Month on The Tonic. Lack of magnesium can lead to serious health issues. Sadly, one in three Canadians aren't getting enough. Common signs include trouble sleeping, low concentration, irritability, headaches, muscle cramps, or spasms. Could you be lacking? Choose from New Roots Herbal's Ultra Gentle Magnesium Bisglycinate, Heart Mag for added cardiac support, or Clarity Mag, a no-brainer for anyone over 50, exclusively at health food stores. To find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Doug Earl joined Fighting Blindness Canada, FBC, in December 2018 as president and CEO. Since then, he's been leading FBC through a transformation to accelerate research into all blinding eye diseases in order to accelerate the discovery of treatments and cures for blindness and to improve access to innovative gene and cell therapies and medications for Canadians. He's built strong collaborative partnerships within the vision loss community, recognized by receiving in 2021 the Canadian Council of the Blind's President's Award and the Ontario Association of Optometrists Achievement Award. And he's been a guest on this show before. Welcome back, Doug. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. So today we are talking about Inherited Retinal Disease Awareness Month. Can you tell us what an inherited retinal disease is? Absolutely. Inherited retinal diseases are very rare. About 21,000 Canadians are impacted. And this is where your genes are not operating. You're missing a gene or it's not operating effectively. You're born with it. And in most cases, it is a slow progression where you're losing sight. So depending on the disease, it has different impacts, but it is an inherited blinding eye disease that leads to blindness. Can we circle in on some of those impacts if you have an IRD? Sure. So the most prominent is retinitis pigmentosa, which is about 6,000 Canadians. And right off the bat, you're never able to see in the dark. So people with retinitis pigmentosa, they have night vision challenges. They've never been able to see the stars. Another inherited condition is Stargardt's which is where you lose the center of your eye, being able to see in the center. It's very blurry, colors are challenging. Usher's is another form, and, and that, that's when you're born, you don't hear, and you also slowly lose your sight. So there's different conditions, and it impacts differently. As you know, most conditions, they're slowly losing their sight until the point where they see through a straw and then, and then lose it when they're finally full vision lost uh, at the age of 30, 45, depending on the condition. Wow. So you mentioned, what was the number that you threw out there of how many Canadians have the IRDs? Was it 22,000? Uh, it's almost 21,000 Canadians are living with an inherited renal disease in Canada today. Which is both a big number and a small number. I mean, it's a big number because you don't want anybody to suffer, but it's a small number because I, I would presume for fundraising purposes, you're dealing with such a small cohort it's kind of dwarfed by some of the other ailments that are out there. I would imagine it's a challenge. Yeah, well, there's over 8 million Canadians living with a blinding eye disease, so one in oh, five. Okay. And so 21,000, uh, where it's inherited, is a small number. But it is also the most devastating because it starts right at birth and people are losing their sight. They're having to adapt. You know, there's challenges bumping in, falling, you know, as, as they're going through. They're challenged going through school, finding employment. People that are living with inherited diseases are about 15, 20% a higher unemployment rate than their sighted peers. Whereas in the other contrast, it's usually later in life where you're right. losing sight. So what treatments are available for somebody who has an IRD? Well, that, that's the biggest challenge. And part of the reason why Fighting Blindness Canada was formed was because uh, basically back in 1974, so 47 years, 48 years ago, you were told that your child has 
an inherited disease, they're going to go blind and there's no options, no treatments. Hmm. Just train them on how to rebraille and get ready. And that just wasn't good enough. So Fighting Blindness Canada was formed because of that. You know, as a parent, it's just not good enough to say that happened. So we've since then invested over $40 million into accelerating research, into discovering treatments for all blinding eye diseases, but in particular, inherited diseases. And I'm very pleased to say our investments are paying off. We're in a a moment in time where research, the science theory is becoming treatment reality. And and the first one that Fighting Blindness Canada was very involved in, uh, we created the first registry back uh, almost 16, 17 years ago, Five Canadians were identified from the registry as having an RPE65 gene that wasn't working, and and they went and participated in the first human gene therapy for an eye disease. And that the results of that study was used to help achieve the first approved targeted gene therapy in Canada in October 2020. Wow. Yeah, so that's hopeful. And and even back five, six years ago, there was one clinical trial, this treatment, this RPE65 gene therapy. Now we're tracking over 80 clinical trials happening right now where these lab discoveries are becoming treatment reality, where we're learning, perfecting, understanding. Some of it's successful, some of it's not, but treatments are on the way and it's dramatically changing. So off the top of the show, we mentioned it is IRD Awareness Month. If somebody were interested in participating, what can they do? There's been a number of events so far this month. The one happened just this week with Dr. Daniel Chung. We had a webinar. He shared this amazing gene agnostic. So it it doesn't matter what gene you have. They're working on this treatment in clinical trials that will help slow down and in some cases stop further vision loss. On October 2nd, we have a viewpoint on uh, that weekend where we're talking about stem cells with uh, Dr. Brian Valios. We have IRD research from Dr. Bremner, who's working on trying to identify treatments. Vince Gerpepe, who's trying to help understand the biology of why ushers occurs. Adroy Vinson, who works on developing models to test various treatments. So it's, it's coming to our viewpoint where we share this information. You can ask your questions as well. We do have a patient registry where people can uh, join and they can help support clinical trials as well. We are encouraging people that may have these IRDs, inherited renal disease, to get genetic testing so that you know and then help encourage research into the gene that, that's impacting you. Okay. You've talked about some of the research that's ongoing. Where do you see the future of IRD research going? Well, there's two things. One, you know, we're very focused on developing uh, new gene therapies. So that's the moment in time where this, the research is now making impact on, on treatments. But the future, the next step is because gene therapy is where, where you're trying to basically replace the furnace. The furnace isn't working and you need to replace it. So that's what gene therapy is doing. It's replacing that gene that's not functioning with one that is. But if you've already lost photoreceptors, that key part of your eye that helps convert images and send signals to your brain to be able to see, that's where stem cell research is the future. And we're probably 10 years away from seeing uh, stem cells reach effectively treatments. So we're supporting a very promising 
research in stem cells where we've actually seen it in uh, the experiments. We've seen the stem cell arrive where it's supposed to be and develop connections to the nerve. So we're very excited. Uh, the researcher has developed working with industry partners about a $100 million pathway. If these experiments that we're funding right now work, then he has a runway to get it into human treatment. We have a number of other projects underway around trying to reinvent different parts of the eye that have died and uh, trying to replace them. So it's sort of like uh, stem cells is really like the house burnt down and we need to rebuild it. Fantastic. What are some of the other initiatives taking place at Fighting Blindness Canada? Well, there's a couple of things. We have an effort to help create a national eye strategy. And right now, the Honourable Judy Scroll, who's an MP in the House of Commons from Toronto area, has introduced a bill that will implement a national eye strategy. It's called Bill C-284. And we have a, a website up called eyecarestrategy.ca where you can send an email to your MP to encourage them to support the Bill 284. And this, this is really important for us. Right now, we don't have a national strategy. And despite the fact that we found in our cost of vision loss study that there's a $32.9 billion annual social economic impact for vision loss, uh, we don't have a strategy. And when the pandemic hit, for example, you know, the UK has doubled the population of Canada, and it had about 15,000 less anti-VEGF treatments take place. In Canada, in the same time period, we had almost 75,000 treatments not take place. And a part of that, when we analyzed it, is because we didn't have a strategy. We didn't identify urgent treatments that need to continue despite things like clinics being uh, closed because of the pandemic, looking at ways of mobilizing people to encourage them to get an early diagnosis through a regular eye exam. Because that, that eye exam, if you do get diagnosed as having a, that your blinding eye disease has converted or that you now have a blinding eye disease, we can help stabilize your sight, stop vision loss with a three out of four cases if diagnosed early and have access to treatment. So that's why Bill 284 is so important, and we're hoping and encouraging our members of Parliament to support it. And you can send them an email. We've made it as easy as possible. It takes about a minute at iCareStrategy.ca. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Carolyn Cohen, Dr. Angel Chu, and Doug Earle. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or... You can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.